News. 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 New York City. F A Q. In our United States, about half of the people live in cities and their suburbs. Between these cities has grown a network of transportation arteries. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel, and Professor Christina Greer and I are talking about subway accessibility with engineer and advocate Chris Pangolina. Just after he sat down with us, and just before he left New York City for a new challenge in San Francisco, a fatal accident in Midtown Manhattan brought overdue and renewed attention to that issue. Chris called to discuss that. Let's get right to it. Chris, thanks for getting back on the phone. Like, we talked less than two weeks ago about accessibility, and days later, you know, the issue seemed to be electrified after uh, Malaysia Goodson fell and uh, and died walking up uh, uh, subway steps with her infant in Manhattan. The death of a young mother in a New York City subway station is people calling for more accessibility on public transportation. 22-year-old Malaysia Goodson plunged to her death on subway stairs while carrying a stroller with her one-year-old daughter inside that stroller. Her daughter was not hurt and is now staying with her father. The medical examiner said a few days later that maybe this was from a pre-existing condition, but I think it, it, it woke a lot of New Yorkers up to what a nightmare the, uh, navigating the subway can be. Yeah, and, you know, um, first, you know, sending all our condolences to the Goodson family. Um, oh. It's very uh, tragic, of course, what happened. And I think, um, you know, I think a lot of New Yorkers saw themselves in Malaysia Goodson and, and realized, wow, that could have been me, you know, and... I think it was something that a lot of people do every day um, and have to because of how difficult the subway is to navigate if you're carrying anything uh, like a stroller in the system. I know uh, Transit Center put out uh, a findings just afterward about the 50 subway stations that should be included in the MTA's fast-forward plan to, to help increase mobility. It's something like 117 now out of, out of more than 400 uh, that, that are there. Do you see any chance that, that, that this sort of new uh, new awareness and public conversation might uh, might might spur change, or what are the point bringing money to uh, uh, to get some of this done? It's not really a, a niche issue, as people can sometimes think it is. It's like, oh, it's just for elevators or for a very few number of people who really take the subway anyway, people with disabilities. But when you zoom out and then realize that actually hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers need them every day, um, including parents with strollers, then it becomes an issue of, oh, this is actually good for all of us. You know, like a curb ramp, it's good for everybody. It's not just for people that absolutely need it. Um, and I think that will help bring in, uh, always I'm hopeful that it will bring in support for more money uh, and the political will to to expand the number of elevators. I mean, it's kind of pathetic. We're, down, we're only at 117 out of 472, you know, when you see other cities closer to 100%, even in the United States. Um, so definitely action needs to be taken. Um, and hopefully some good can come out of uh, what happened last week. Chris, th thank you again, and uh, I hope uh, I hope we'll keep this conversation uh, conversation going. And I, I hope uh, the West Coast is treating you well so far. So far, so good. It is significantly warmer here, uh, but thanks. I hope the conversation keeps going as well until we get that funding that we need uh, to make the subway accessible. How is accessibility in San Francisco? Um, it's better than New York. Sidewalks are maintained, and there's more uh, curb ramps. More of the stations have elevators, and they're better in terms of uh, not going out of service as often. 
that being said, there's not as much of a subway in San Francisco, so there's less to maintain. Okay, so before we get started, I'm fascinated by this because I've heard this before, but can you just briefly walk us through how you ended up at the Transit Center in New York? I find your West Coast to East Coast trajectory fascinating, yeah. and also your kind of public-private governmental partnerships and engineering background and yeah. how it feeds into we'll get to some of the other advocacy stuff in a minute sure but can you just kind of give us your incredible cv that <laughs> all <laughs> transportation junkies are super jealous of yeah hence my i'm showing you my little token oh nice that is subway token perfect <laughs> okay so i uh went to grad school in boston at mit so actually well let me back up i was born in portland oregon so that's my first west coast and then went to boston for grad school and then after that, I came back. I went back to the West Coast of San Francisco, and worked for the San Francisco MTA um, for five years. And that was my first government, or actually my second government experience. I had been in internships, but then I came to New York because I always wanted to live in New York. What who? What transit person doesn't want to live in New York? And so, in 2014, I moved here, and um, that was purely because I wanted to move here, not for career, not for anything like that. But I was blessed and got the job with New York City Transit. And like, so I'm a transit guy. I worked for San Francisco MTA for a while. I, I actually skipped over my time in DC for a year. I was at the United States Department of Transportation. Went back to San Francisco. One, two, three. Coming to New York was my fourth cross country move. Um, and to work for New York City Transit was like, wow, this is the, this is it. This is the subway that carries 40% of the people in the country. Transit ridership is right here. That, is that why New York is like the Everest of transit? Because it carries so many it people? It carries so many people. The city's built for it. People, it's not a thing where one in 10 people rely on and one in 20 people rely on. It's almost one in two. It's like a lot of people use the subway. Probably everyone in this room used use some kind of rail transportation today. Um, and so that's why it's, it's sort of the, the thing to do for sure. And then um, after that, after a year and a half at New York City Transit, I decided to leave, and we can get into those reasons later on. And I uh, joined Transit Center, which is a nonprofit advocacy organization that does research and advocacy in transportation. Um, and it really started getting its legs in 2015, 2016. And now most people in transportation, or almost everyone in transportation in New York knows about it. They've done a great job pushing for better buses, for congestion pricing now, uh, for more accessible subways, as well as other advocacy campaigns around the country. Um, it's been fascinating because I'm able to take like this engineering experience and designing experience of, of how transit agencies work and now speak about how to reform the industry in general um, when I was there. And it was great. So 1999 was a pretty cool year. Um, I turned 13, got to be a teenager, um, uh, passed the Americas with Disabilities Act. Um, and it's a long time ago now, I'm getting old. And that's... 29 years. Mm -hmm. Wow. Today's legislation brings us closer to that day when no Americans will ever again be deprived of their basic guarantee of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the system here isn't all that accessible. Like there, there's a pretty limited number of stations with elevators. Right. They're often out. Mm -hmm. um, what's What's been happening in this place that, that's built for transit? This has been such a long, slow process. Yeah, this has been an amazing history. 
so even before the ADA, you had the, I think, the, the Architectural Rehabilitation Act or something like that back in the, I think, 70s, mid-70s. And so there's been a fight for elevators in the subway here since then. And there's two landmark uh, court cases and political discussions that got us to where we are today, um, which the ADA, of course, was part of. But 1984 and 1994, there were cases brought on by Eastern Paralyzed Veterans, which is now called United Spinal. And they um, helped bring about what's called the 100 Key Stations. And so in their settlement with New York City Transit and the state of New York, the state agreed that they will build 100, ele- 100 stations up to um, with elevators by 2020, so next year. And they were going to hit that mark. Um, and that was a settlement that was reached because, from my understanding, when the ADA was passed in 1990, uh, many New York area representatives, um, Democrats included, and, and Republicans, um, were not going to vote for the ADA because of the burden that it would put on the state institutions. And so they carved out an exemption for Philadelphia, New York, San Francisco, I think Chicago too, where they could just f- file a key station plan. Um meaning they could bring a certain number of stations up to code. And then that was it. And so New York got that exemption. And even that was a fight. There's uh, news, art, news articles in the New York Times, if you search back in their archives, of Mayor, uh, I always say his last name wrong, Ed Koch. Um, Ed Koch. Nailed it. Um, great. Uh, hopefully, maybe you could say my last name. Right. But um, Ed, <laughs> Ed Koch, Koch. Uh, he uh, was talking about how it was such a waste of money to build elevators because nobody would use them. And why don't we just build this other thing, which is now called paratransit, and just special buses for people who can't use the subway. Um, so why build these 50 or $60 million program back then, which is obviously cheap now, um, and let's spend the money instead on paratransit. And then Mario Cuomo, the governor at the time, negotiated with the uh, people with people disability community, and they ended up with a settlement. But now if you look at paratransit, um, it costs $600 million a year. This is access a ride, access right? Access a ride, yes. Which pretty much everyone who uses it um, does not like. No, no one likes it. For um, $600 million a year. For $600 million a year. For $600 million a year. For $600 million a year. Which, after four years of that, you could probably make the entire system accessible. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, Chris, can you um, walk our, You know, you've been so generous with my students at Fordham and Columbia over the years um, in just explaining the elevator system and the times that I've had them use elevators and essentially get around New York City um, just using elevators. Can you explain to our listeners this kind of dual elevator system um, that even the Second Avenue subway has that that's just, if one elevator goes out, essentially the whole system is busted? Um, I think a lot of New Yorkers, especially those who don't use elevators, don't realize that you, you oftentimes have to take two elevators to actually right. get on a proper subway. Can you explain that to a lot of our listeners? Yeah. Many of whom probably have never used an elevator or even looked at Absolutely. an elevator. And actually it's four elevators if you want to get out of the system. So what happens okay. is when you when you walk into it, if you're trying to get to the subway, your objective is to go from the street to the mezzanine level to pay your fare and then the mezzanine level to the platform to catch your train. And so typically there'll be two elevators to use. Um, you'll, For example, let's take J Street, Metro Tech, which is, used to be my home elevator. You'll roll up to the intersection of J and Willoughby and go take the elevator from, the, from that street level down to the mezzanine. 
and swipe your card to, to pay your fare. And then you'll need to pick one of two elevators, either the uptown or the downtown platform, um, and then take another elevator down. And then when you're and you get on the train, of course, and you do the reverse when you get to your mm. arrival mm. station. And so you're looking at an exposure of four elevators per trip. And if you're doing a round trip, that's eight elevators you're taking from point A to B and then back to A. And so at any point, if, if one of those eight elevators is out of service, um, that entire day is pretty much disrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is why um, it gets to the importance of uptime and how and the availability of the elevator and the calculation of that number and why that's important. Mm-hmm. And so you'll see in cities where it's really well run right now, like in Boston and Chicago, they run north of 99% on time, where we run about 95 and a half to 96% on time. Uh, no, sorry, not on time, wrong word, uh, uptime. So, Can you explain uptime yeah. to our listeners? So what it means is in Boston, elevators are up 99 out of 100 minutes um, a day. Um, so, or 99 days out of 100, however you want to think of it. Whereas here in New York, we're up about 95, 96 days out of 100. Seemed like a small difference. But over a year, what that means is in, in Boston, it's about three or four days of elevator outages per elevator. Here in New York, it's about two weeks of elevator outages per elevator, which is an enormous amount of time. And when I tell you that you're exposed to eight elevators a day to go back and forth, what that means is you have a chance of uh, at least twice a week of encountering a broken elevator, right. um, which is, you know, if you're trying to go to work five days a week or you're trying to see friends or family, that's very difficult to rely on. And so for a lot of people, um, they are forced to rely on accessor ride instead if they don't want to be braving the, you know, elevator situation. Right. And are there times where people essentially get stuck in either a mezzanine level or um, I think we even had an instance where after you came to one of my classes and we had lunch, the same elevator that you took to get to my course was no longer working right. just an hour or two after the fact. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so because the elevator lack, there's so few elevators in the system that if one is out, it's really important. It's really impactful. Um, and I, I'm sure every day there's a case of FDNY being called to, to, to lift somebody out of a station because they're stuck. Right. You know, as you know, I can walk a little bit from the wheelchair so we can have someone carry my wheelchair out and I can walk up. But for most people, that's not a possibility. Mm-hmm. And so it happens every day, I'm sure. What's the real financial burden? You know, there was a great article a few months ago about the pink tax, essentially. Right. The burden that women incur. Mm-hmm. So essentially, you know, I pay for Uber or taxis, you know, after a certain hour at night just mm-hmm. because it, it seems like the right thing to do. Yeah. So I'm not by myself, you know, on the subway at 2 or 3 in the morning. Um has anyone done any research on just essentially for people who don't have an extra hour or two to wait for accessoride? You know, we've taken Ubers before just because the elevators have been out. Mm-hmm. Has anyone done any research on the amount of money that you have to come out of pocket once you look at your app, realize the elevator isn't working, and have to get into a, a taxi or I'm going to give a shout out to Uber since they're stealing you from us. Um, is the, Is that, you know, do we know the average cost that someone who... Um, relies on the subway elevator system must incur when the elevators are out. Yeah, you know, I don't, I haven't seen any research on that, but there's a lot you can just think about the costs for that person in terms of twice a week they're going to have to use Uber or Lyft or taxi if they're able to. Um, if not that, then they're going to have to do um, uh, accessor ride, which is going to maybe delay their trip or the trip not taken is mm-hmm. also a cost, right? Mm-hmm. If they're not being able to see their friends or get to work. Um, but you know, another one that I, I think about all the time is the rent. 
and that you have to live near a accessible subway station if you wanted a decent commute. And so that, that blocks out a lot of Bay Ridge, South Brooklyn. Um, a lot of the Bronx is out of uh, in Washington Heights. And so what happens is you end up living where the elevators are, which is Midtown, Financial District, Downtown Brooklyn, Long Island City. And those are not cheap places to live. Right. And, and so there's an enormous here, cost. Says, in Manhattan, only 36 of the 147 stations are wheelchair accessible. And some of those being only partly accessible. Yeah, exactly. And so um, just look at the rent map around Fulton Street or uh-huh. J Street in Brooklyn versus Bay Ridge or uh, Northern Bronx and tell me there isn't a rent penalty for living near an elevator. Right. Um, and I think that's a real cost that is not, you know, we just don't discuss much, right. let alone an accessible building near a uh, exactly. elevator building. You exactly. Know. Nope. So, quick question, just speaking of costs. So I read a couple of years ago, it might have gone up, that every assessor ad, right, if you use one, you're paying like the train fare. Um, and that each one cost the MTA $66, uh, sorry, $67.33 was, was the average as of 2014. That's right. What? Yeah. What? I, 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 just help me wrap my head around that. Um, maybe this is even a pitch for, pitch for Uber in some sense, which, which I have my doubts about. But sixty-seven thirty-three a ride, and, and what happened with the uh, with the accessible cabs that were supposed to be coming in with the, with the cabs of tomorrow? Ooh, the future sphere. It's what people in nineteen sixty-five imagined what life would be like in nineteen eighty-seven. Yeah. Wasn't that a Bloomberg initiative? That, I think so. Oh, I, I, it was a bit of a rhetorical question. I think uh, de Blasio um, helped kill that when he also helped kill the uh, the green cabs um, for, for a few reasons, is my sense. But, Chris, well, yeah, these are well, maybe both. people in Iowa didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't do the presidential run any favors. <laughs> but um, so with the uh, accessory ride, it's very expensive. Um, it's highly inefficient in terms of its routing. Um, it, it's, it's a dedicated fleet with dedicated operators and they, you know, it, it's, it costs almost the same amount as a fixed route bus because it's the same, uh, a very similar contract for labor and, and vehicles, but you're only carrying like one person an hour versus like mm. 40 or 50 people an hour. Like the M5 probably carries north of a hundred people per hour. And so your cost per person is diffused for accessory. Yeah. It's about $66, $67 a person. And, uh, they're only supposed to pay 275 because, it's supposed to be a in, in substitute for a transit ride. So again, uh, back in the eighties, we can thank the decision there for, for instead of building elevators, doing this. So uh, the city right now and other cities are doing this too. Boston is looking at this right now of how can they potentially use the existing taxi and uh, TNC, the Ubers and Lyfts of the world, uh, fleets to co- to substitute it for accessible ride because one they give people a fifteen minute reservation time instead of 24 hours mm-hmm. and two you only pay for them when they're carrying a rider not the whole time and so th- that presents other issues which we can always get into but from a transportation point of view uh, it's much cheaper and much better customer service um and in terms of the cabs you know the, I, I think the idea was to have like 50 percent of the fleet accessible by 2020 right. or something like that and i think they might hit that still and I'm, i haven't looked at the numbers but as we know, the yellow cab industry has taken a hit in the last five years. Um, so there are fewer cabs on the street. And a lot of those – and the rules didn't say that you had to drive the cars. There just had to be 50% of the fleet available. And that fleet is more expensive to drive. You know, they're less fuel efficient by nature being bigger than sedans. And so 
they're sitting in yards or at taxi uh, depots around the city, um, and they're just not out on the street, which is why TLC is trying to figure out the rules to the Taxi and Limousine Commission is trying to figure out the rules to incentivize those to be driven. Wow. Is it 50% if, if you are a medallion owner or you have a fleet that 50% is supposed to be uh, by, by next year? Is that right? Or, or is that I'm just not sure across if it's the. By, I think it's across the yellow cab fleet or the cab fleet in general. I don't know. I don't think it's by base um, in that sense. But this is where, I mean, and then you have Ubers and Lyfts out there, which many of them are not accessible. So then how, and they're taking a lot more of the rides. I mean, and we've tried to draw a distinction between, like, raising your hand up to, to hail a cab versus on your phone. But I think, let's be real, they're the same thing now for a lot of people. And so um, we don't have that 50% rule for, for higher vehicles, mm-hmm. um, which is what TLC is trying to figure out. And does Uber or Lyft have any um, rules for the the number of vehicles or the percentage of vehicles that they have that are accessible? From my understanding that TLC does not have a rule for them on that. And there's no nationwide rule or anything. Okay. So it's jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Um, but there is a strong incentive for both companies to get more wheelchair accessible vehicles out on the street. Mm-hmm. And I think we're trying to – I mean, Uber made an announcement a few months ago about this, about getting more waves out there. And I've definitely seen it as a wave – a wheelchair accessible vehicle user um, – that the wait times have come down in certain cities. Uh, What's the average wait time for an accessible vehicle? Say if if I'm calling an Uber from a popular neighborhood in New York, two to four minutes, I guess. Yeah. Um, I would expect usually 10 to 15, depending on time of day. Sometimes it's lower, surprisingly. Sometimes it's higher. But generally, they've, they've gotten now, I remember a year ago, where like you'd just be happy to see one on the map, to now where they actually are roaming around and, yeah. And I think, you know, what the trick here is if we can make vehicle design universal where everybody, no matter wheelchair accessible vehicle or neater or not, rider or not, then there'll be much more of them out there. Mm-hmm. Like if, imagine if like 50 percent of the fleet truly was on the on the street as accessible, then your wait times would be you know, just, just the same yeah. pretty much. Now, I've got a question because, I mean, you and Harry, I've always, you know, I keep a list of my favorite New Yorkers and both of you are on it in the top five spots. High five. <laughs> People can come off the list, but you two are permanently on the list. <laughs> um, and because you have this unique background in city government and planning, engineering, uh, the private sector, the nonprofit sector, if let's just say you were mayor of New York City, policy-wise, how would you start to implement some of what you suggested in the you know over the past few months when I've heard you talk? Would you target city council? Would you target the mayor? Would it be the governor? Like, for our listeners, how, for those people who were inspired to, you know, get more involved, what are some of the interesting steps that they could take and who should they start to target um, yeah. to to move this ball forward? So going back to the, the MTA here in this case, so as I'm sure your listeners all know and we all know here that it's a state and city cooperation here for the capital plan. <laughs> cooperation yeah. is a very loose word. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ideal cooperation. Dance, fight, I don't know what you want to call it. But um, what the situation is, is that, I mean, if I, if I was in that situation of, as mayor or as a city councilor, the city does contribute a significant amount of money toward the capital plan of the MTA. This is a capital plan that gets renewed every five years and funds things like buying new train cars, uh, building new subway stations, and building new elevators. And I think the city and all city council and the mayor would would agree that having an accessible system is good for the city. 
And I think what they need to do is take responsibility and take and have accountability for that money that they give to the state, give to the MTA, and say that look, we're going to contribute. And there's always a fight over the capital plan, right? Every every year, and 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 stand up and be like, look, we're going to hold this capital plan to a high standard, and we'd love to contribute to it. But here are the things we want to see as a city. We want to see this many more elevators by 2025. We want to see a full accessible system by 2035. And until you sign in in, in blood or whatever it might be to agree to this. We will not be funding this capital plan. And no, you will not blame us for the deteriorating system here. No, you will not blame us for not playing ball. We're just asking for what's reasonable. And I think the Speaker of the City Council, the Mayor, have the bully pulpit here to say these things. I mean, people know Corey Johnson. He's been on the cover of magazines now. People know who he is in the transportation community. He's been on this podcast, the Mayor as well. And those folks can't have the power to say these things. But, but Corey is saying that, that the city should run its own trains. Uh, the mayor very conspicuously is not at all um, echoing that call <clears throat> and, and is continuing to say, uh, you know, to sort of put the onus on, on, on the state and to be resistant about, about putting money in. Like, you're leaving New York. So just I'm between us, only physically, not spiritually. I'm totally in denial. But, but while you're at a physical remove, just between us and, and our listeners <laughs> – <laughs> What's what is the right answer here? Like, like who who should have control, and what ought they, and what should they be doing in this this very distributed system? You know, this has been a very very interesting discussion I've been having, even while on vacation, and can't get away from this issue. And I think what's interesting is why it was in city control for a while until 1968ish when the MTA took it over, and it was because the city couldn't raise the fare, and therefore it went into disrepair for, and we had the, the nightmare 70s and 80s here in New York with the subway. So. With no accountability comes the ability to raise the fare because no one can hold you accountable for raising the fare. With accountability, that that means now you all of a sudden you have to you have to maintain the subway. But can you also raise the fare? I, I mean, that's what my question is. And I'm, I'm I think that it would be good. I mean, let me, let me remove this for a second from the ex- exact example. But it, an authority that runs a public transportation system should be accountable directly to the voters it serves. That sounds like, to me, city control. Now, all of a sudden, it becomes an election issue. All of a sudden, it becomes a city council issue. And it's directly affecting the people that ride the system every day. Um, but those same people have to either build in the fare hikes into the uh, charter, if you will, like every two years, and sorry, I can't do this, I can't stop this, or have the spine to be like, look, we need to raise the fare in order to maintain this thing, or I'm going to find ways to... Ho- to streamline the MTA so I don't have to raise the fare. Mm-hmm. But somehow I'm not going to let us fall back in the 1970s again. Are, do, you feel like we are, do, really quickly, do you feel like we are falling back into the 70s? Um, you know, having not lived here in the 70s but hearing stories about it, obviously we're light years ahead of where we were. Uh-huh. But um, any, any dip down is scary. And I think the nose is starting to point down a little bit in, in this plane right here. Okay. And we need to level out before we get anywhere close. Okay. So, so there's a theoretical state with the Governor Shmomo, and <clears throat> he says, I don't control the, uh, the, the, the Shmomo Transportation Authority. Mm-hmm. Harry, uh, you have to yell when you're talking about Cuomo. We <laughs> 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 have to yell into the microphone. <laughs> but he came out yesterday, and he took this, this passive deal where because nobody has control, there's this nominal agreement where yep. fares go up every two years and, and it's fairly predictable and said, no, let's not do that because these guys are wasting money. Um, 
maybe he's nodding a labor cost, maybe not. It's not totally clear. But 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 instead of that, why don't we uh, save money and not raise the fare and just have these guys tighten their belt and do better? Is yeah. that Governor Shmomo making a lot of sense there? No, not at all. I mean, there's a lot going on, and you just open up a whole can of worms here by bringing in the governor that we can talk about for hours. But it is fascinating because, I mean, there's a lot of issues going on here, and one is, sure, I think the MTA could definitely be run more efficient, but I don't think the time to bash them over efficiencies when is once every three years when we have to deal with fare hikes. This should be a continuously improved situation, and that attention should always be on this issue to make the agency more efficient. I mean, there's issues where, I mean, if you look at the amount of um, time that employees are out because of sick time or other things, and this, this, and I'm not putting blame on any management or labor here, it's just the fact that if people were able to work more often and not and come into work, you wouldn't have to do these service cuts, for example. You would have 10% more of your labor force working. Um, due to better management or other, other practices. And I think those kind of things could definitely be looked at. Um, I mean, I, I find it fascinating, too, about when he wants to come in and control and when he wants to back off and say he doesn't own the situation. If you look at the L train shutdown, this is fascinating because you had Andy Byford speak and say that like, he's going to have an independent contract, uh, contractor to make sure that this plan is safe and viable. And all of a sudden, at the board meeting on Tuesday and over this week... Andy Byford being... Being the president of the New York City Transit. Who all of a sudden is... Well, he's being sidelined. And he's the guy that was brought in to fix the system, New York City Transit. Byford was hired to shake up the tired old system. He crafted a grand modernization plan that calls for hundreds of station renovations, thousands of new subway cars, and more state-of-the-art computer signal controls that can run trains faster and more frequently. And now you're seeing him being sidelined because the mayor is, excuse me, the governor is controlling from behind. You have the chair of the board. Now that independent contractor who the president was going to hire to oversee the L train, that's been pulled out from underneath him, and the board is going to take that control. And then MTA Capital Construction which is not New York City Transit, it's a parallel agency next to New York City Transit, is now going to take over the L train uh, construction. So Andy Byford, is president of New York City Transit, is completely Box not involved, boxed out of this. And he was the one that had the voice that was willing to be like, hey, I'm going to make sure this works. And he's not part of it anymore. I mean, that's, I mean, from the outside, it's like, what is going on? You know, and how can he, and, and we all like him a lot in the transit community, in the advocacy community. He's doing a lot for accessibility and for buses and, and, and such. So to see him sidelined is alarming. Where did Governor Shmomo in hypothetical state get his engineering degree from? Do you remember? Mm. You know, <laughs> I, that I couldn't tell you. Huh. Okay, so um, what's your favorite station in New York now that you're leaving us? Oh, yeah, man. And you see that I'm... I know. Our listeners can't see my face, but I have... You're making me like yeah, think terse get all Dr. emotional Greer here. Face on. <laughs> I'm very upset. West Fourth Street has always been my favorite station. Okay, why is that? Um, no. No. <laughs> yes. Like, Harry, we'll yes. get to your favorite station in a moment. Now, why is that? Because it has the best memories for me of when I get out that station. I'm always I I love the neighborhood. Okay. And so I come out and I'm like ah I'm near Washington Square Park. Uh-huh. Um, I'm near just. A place in New York, which I feel very happy in, and so West Fourth Street to me symbolizes that. Okay, and from is it a, a consistent station? 
like consistently like being one of my accessible, favorites. Accessible oh, with and, from an, and, and so from that point of view, from the physical aspect of it, it there's only one elevator from the street to the Eighth um, Avenue platform, okay. and so it's much easier. There's only one point of failure to get in, mm. uh, so it's very accessible from that point of view. One point of failure. Yeah. I feel like that should be the title of the New York City subway debacle for these right? past <laughs> few years. Um, versus like a station like Thirty uh, Fourth Street Hudson Yards, which has yeah. three elevators and to get down, it takes nine minutes to get in from the street. Do um, the elevators actually go down, or do they sort of slant? They go, the yeah, that's right. One of them slants a little bit, and doesn't actually go straight down. Wait, explain that to our listeners. So, Thirty Fourth Street, the way it was designed, has the new. This is a new, the, the new Hudson Yards one. Yeah, yes. built in twenty fourteen, mm-hmm. or opened in twenty fourteen ish. It was uh, there's a street elevator that goes from the street to the mezzanine, and then there's a incline or funicular or however you want to call it that <laughs> does a forty five degree angle or so from the mezzanine one to mezzanine two, and then there's an, another elevator. To the platform, but you know, I obviously haven't seen the engineering drawings. I don't know what they were trying to get underneath when they did that slanting elevator. But there's just a lot to be desired from a vertical access point of view mm-hmm. there. Whereas West Fourth Street is just like you know, you snap your fingers, you're down there. Right. Well, I mean, this is so disappointing because for a system that was you know launched, if you will, in 2014, one would think that 34th Street Hudson Yards would be the most convenient. You Absolutely. know, sort of think about Second Avenue Subway. You know. I would think that they'd have more elevators yes. um, and maybe well, fewer points of entry so you could have fewer points of failure. And I think this shows uh, the MTAs, uh, perhaps under previous leadership, maybe not now, but at least previous, that they just didn't think accessibility was a box to be checked. The ADA was a f- ceiling, not a floor. And so you stick one elevator in the middle of the platform, mm-hmm. good enough. At 72nd Street, you see there's, I think, four elevators that go from the street to the m- mezzanine. And that's because the general population uses it, so we got to accommodate everybody. But if it's just people with disabilities, here's where your one dinky elevator, and if it breaks, it breaks. And you see that because there's only one in the platform. And again, this is designed from scratch, so why couldn't we get this right? You know, right. and I'm sure one extra elevator would have cost, you know, peanuts compared to it's of new construction and all that. Exactly. You know. Well, this goes back to the larger point of you know having people at the table. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and this goes for for any occupation. You yeah, know, yeah, having absolutely. Just, when I say diverse, I mean in the fullest sense of yes. the word, just people who are thinking about um, ideas that How many people just aren't. thought about people with wheelchairs, people with strollers, uh, folks who can't have knee injuries? None of that, I bet you, is at the table during these design processes, you know? Well, I mean, my students are still talking about the assignment um, that you came in and, um, you know, you judged the final projects. Yes. But my students at Fordham for my urban politics class had to get around in New York City only using elevators and then write about their experience. And so many of them realized, A, the stations they wanted to go to had no elevators. Mm -hmm. B, they were spending hours to get where they needed to go. Totally. And when they wanted to come back home, and they had to come back on elevators as well, using just elevators, they couldn't, right? And so trying to figure out how one maneuvers the city, um, and this is just them walking around. This isn't Mm -hmm. even... um, Dealing with, you know, our busted sidewalks and curbs and things like that. Um, So I really appreciate you sort of opening their eyes at just another generation of people who care about transportation in cities to really think about others beyond themselves. Thank you so much for coming in and taking the time. Before you uh, blow town, any last words you want to leave uh, New York uh, and any hypothetical like, you know, Mayor Nanazio's and uh, Governor Shlomo's with as uh, they think about what we need from here. Yeah, I think that, 
you know, New York's in an interesting position right now where the MTA and the subway is obviously the lifeblood of the city. And as much as we like to bash it, and I, I do too, you go to any other city in this country and transit is terrible. Like, you, you can, like what other city can you wait 10 minutes for a train at 2 in the morning? This is fantastic. You know, but they closed the trains in Boston. I'm yeah, sorry. yeah. The trains close at <laughs> midnight. Like every London. other city. <laughs> it's like oh, too bad. I mean, <laughs> you should have been inside. You, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, New York City subway allows you to get places any time of day. It's an absolute blessing, and we should always be thankful for that. Now, and we we criticize because we love, right? And so we love the <laughs> okay, subway. Okay, James Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that the leadership of the city and the state just needs to recognize the asset they have, and let's make this better. Let's take it seriously. Let's treat the folks inside to Broadway and the other places of MTA with the respect they deserve and give them the resources they need to do the job and to make the subway as great as it can. I, I mean, I hope to come back here often and I hope to come back here to live again in the not too distant future. And it would be great to have more subway stations to live near and to have more places to go. Um, and I hope in 2020, 2025 and so on that we get there. So keep working at it in New York. Um, I'm watching. I'll be from tweeting afar. from afar. I just hope that I can make a fresh start. Um, FAQ SFO. Can we can we go on a field trip, Harry? FAQ SFO. SFO. There we Let's go. Let's do it. Okay. And as a bonus, you can uh, dress for warm weather even in January. Oh. Listen, you know what? I'm not going to jump on the San Francisco bandwagon. I'm still boycotting Chris leaving. So, <laughs> you know, you can take your sweater and have all of your San Francisco weather you you want. I'm, I'm just I'm going to be in a sweater vest every time now. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by Sweater Vests. Um, Chris, thank you so much. We're really excited for you, obviously, in this new opportunity. Um, and we just really appreciate all of your thoughtful work that you've put in over the years for transportation. Because, obviously, the work that you've done has exponentially assisted all of our lives in New York City and obviously other cities that are following your lead. So thank well, you. Well, thank you, Christy, and thank you, Harry, for having me on here. And New York has been an amazing educational experience the last four years of learning how government works, how <laughs> advocacy works. You know, nothing like adversity to make you spring up and try to make things change, you know. Yeah. So let's keep working at it. So long, one more high five. <laughs> thank you. Thank Absolutely. You. Thank you. Some of the people who work in Manhattan live in apartment houses and other sections of the city. FAQ NYC is brought to you by Grant from Soap, a media company using the blockchain to reinvent the economics of journalism. Headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research in NYU. This podcast was produced by Jordan Gaspore. It was mixed and mastered by Adam Kamara. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week.